Do you want to use visual storytelling to change lives? Do you feel called to develop filmmaking skills that will expand your reach? Or use your existing skills to tell more meaningful stories? Walla Walla University offers a Master's of Arts in Cinema, Religion, and Worldview. This two-year hybrid master's program means you'll spend two weeks each year on campus in intensives and the remaining time learning online so you can continue to earn while you learn. To learn more and apply, visit filmforhim.org slash called. That's F-I-L-M, the number four, H-I-M, dot org, forward slash called. And when you apply now for the summer 2019 cohort, you can have the $50 application fee waived by entering the code WESVI when you submit your application. Earn your Master's of Arts in Cinema, Religion, and Worldview. Tell stories. Create change. What's up, guys? Welcome back to the West Vi Podcast. This episode is sponsored by Disruptive Adventism. Disruptive Adventism is a platform that encourages people to contribute to the changing of the fabric of Adventism through conversation, collaboration, and content creation. If you want to join in, head over to disruptiveadventism.org. Well, the way to sing the Lord's song in a strange land is to do it in the language of that land. It's to do it according to the rhythms of that land, without compromising principle, but to be aware that they do things differently, which may not be morally, ethically, or biblically wrong. So it's a, it's it's something where you need to sort out the two. So when we look at a world church, when we're coming from hundreds of different cultures, we have to be very careful that when we produce materials, books, lessons, whatever, that we don't think there's a one-size-fits-all. It has to be translated not only in language, but in concepts, in in, in worldview, so it'll be understood in different areas. Hey guys, thanks so much for tuning in again to the West Five Podcast. I just want to say, before we get started today, how much I appreciate all of you who listen to the show. This past week, the show passed a thousand downloads, and I know that's not just a ton of downloads when it comes to the greater podcast world, but for a guy recording voiceovers in his wife's closet, um, that's a big deal. And so thank you so much for tuning in. I, I love doing this and I would probably do it even if you weren't listening, but it means much more to me to know that these, these conversations that I'm having, this journey that I'm on is also connecting for others and that you're enjoying this as well. So thank you so much for being part of this with me and affirming by your participation in downloading the show that uh, what I'm doing here means something. Love it. My guest today is Gary Krause, and he's the Director of Adventist Mission and an Associate Secretary of the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventist. And what all those titles basically mean is that, that in the structure of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, Gary is the man who is responsible for overseeing the mission of the church as it seeks to enter into all the world and proclaim the gospel. And so he has the responsibility of making sure that when we are doing mission, that we are doing it well, that we're doing it in an orderly fashion, but also that we are maintaining a, a semblance of cultural sensitivity. And this has been um, a criticism of, of Christianity uh, of late as it's coming up, and that, that it forces a Western cultural perspective onto those who they're converting. That's not the gospel. And so Gary and I talk, talk at length about that today, about how we 
maintain um, the principles of the work that we're called to do while not forcing our culture into someone else's culture. Because the gospel is supposed to be universal. It is not explicit to a Western culture. You don't have to look, act, dress, talk, do church like an American to be a Christian, even though that's kind of been lost over the years. So today we're going we're gonna to work through that. We're going to talk about that and then try to identify some of those principles that are used overseas when trying to help communicate the gospel effectively into a culture that is not Christian or Western and how some of those principles might come back and be relevant for us over here where a lot of the world has just decided that Christianity doesn't really benefit them, that it's not practical, that it's not applicable for them. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Gary. I know I had a fun time uh, talking with him. I always do. I've known Gary for a number of years now, and uh, it's always a pleasure to get to sit down and talk mission with him. So hope you enjoy this conversation. Catch you on the other side. Uh, I was working at the Adventist Media Centre in Sydney, and I was working as the creative director, writing scripts, helping with videos and TV programs and TV advertisements, that sort of thing. And just one day I came home and on the answering machine there was a a call from someone at the General Conference, uh, Mike Ryan, saying he was looking for a communication director for something called Global Mission and would I be interested? And that was kind of like a shock to the system, the other side of the world. Um, didn't know too much about it, but we, my wife and I, we thought about it, we prayed about it, we talked about it, and we thought it would be an adventure. So we came across here, and my background was communication, and uh, that's why I went into communication director for Global Mission. Well, over time that morphed into various things, and, and I ended up uh, becoming the, the director of Global Mission and that's how I'm in America today, and that's why I have a daughter born in America. <laughs> was that – now, I know that the, 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 the department, I think, it's not super old. Was that, was that when they were, like, kind of forming the Department of Global Missions at yeah, the start? Global or Mission, it's coming up to its 30th anniversary because it was, it was born in 1990 at the General Conference session in Indianapolis. Mm-hmm. So um, – Mike Ryan was the first director, and so I came like six, six, seven years after that. Okay. And so why was it? Because the church has always had this global mission idea, right? We've, we've always been in our identity that we're going to the whole world. So why, why did we get to this place in the 90s where all of a sudden it's like, oh, wait, maybe we need to have a department that's specifically tasked with this mission of going into all of the world Right. Well, something happened in the late 1980s. I don't know what precipitated it, but church leaders started looking at the world map and they started to realise that there were many places where we were relatively strong and other areas where we were making no impact whatsoever. And they also started thinking more missiologically. Instead of just talking about geography, they started thinking in terms of people groups And as they looked at that, then it started to get a little bit frightening because we, of course, like to look at the positives and we look at 
wonderful numbers of baptisms here and there, but suddenly they were hit with the reality that we were really a non-entity among most of the world's population. And so when you looked at our history, we have been relatively strong in rural areas and on islands. And when you look at the growth of the Adventist church, it has been among other Christians who have decided that they would join our faith and animists. And we had neglected vast swaths of the world's population who come from totally different worldviews and have totally different uh, outlook to life. We just basically ignored them. And even today, Wes, if you go into an Adventist book centre, 98% of the materials that you'll find on the shelves there are Christians talking to Christians. It's assume that you believe the Bible. And we just started waking up to the fact in the late 1980s that there were millions and millions of people in the world who had never even seen the Bible. There were millions and millions of people who had never heard the name of Jesus Christ. So when I started here uh, in 1996, we were just starting to use a term called the 1040 window. And it came from another evangelical group, but it was a very helpful way to look at a very untouched area, untouched by the Christian message, where you look at this window stretching from northwest Africa through the Middle East and into Asia, where 60% of the world's population live, and the vast majority have never even heard the name of Jesus. So the church leaders started to look at some of these things and you know, we're a rural church. We've ignored the cities. Uh, we've been a, a church that talks in terms of biblical language, but that doesn't reach a lot of people. And so what are we going to do about this? And so they voted this. First of all, they called it global strategy. Then they started to call it global mission, where we are going to do something about these vast people groups that we've ignored. So that's the birth of global mission. Why do you think that that animists have been... That's That's an interesting little subset is it just the the deep spirituality connected and or was it the beast that that made the connection like <laughs> that just seems like an interesting group to have success with without trying yeah. intentionally i'm i'm guessing a, with a lot of these traditional religions they don't really have a like a holy book like you know the our muslim friends have the quran um you know there's the bhagavad gita there's the Bible, and I, I think that they're operating more at a, a level of um, spirituality, which is more, I don't know whether it's a more instinctual, where, where, where you kind of, how do we keep the, the good spirits happy? How do we make sure we don't upset the bad spirits? And then when somebody comes with something, with a, a package such as the good news as as described in the Bible, where you don't have to fear the spirits, I guess they're probably maybe more open to it. Hmm. Wow. That's interesting. But, but yeah, other Christians and, and traditional religions, there have been the, the growth areas for the Adventist Church. So, <clears throat> so your background is in communications. What... What's kind of the role, like it seems like for the most part, I mean, there's a lot more I know under the surface, but the the big face of Adventist mission and global mission really is more of a communication 
Um, I mean, that's what that's what you see the the Mission 360 and the, the Mission Spotlights and uh, that side of it. Why has that been such a necessary piece in the work that the department does? Right. So what what happened is a few years ago is that there were two offices at the General Conference. There was one global mission, which I was involved in, and then they set up another one called Mission Awareness because church leaders looked at the trend with mission offering giving and it was in drastic decline. And so they wanted to set up an office to tell the story of mission, to let church members know when you give your mission offerings, this is what happens. So then what happened is that they merged these two offices under one umbrella. So the Office of Adventist Mission was born, caring for two things, one global mission and then also mission awareness, letting people know what happens with their mission offerings, et cetera. So my office, we're kind of schizophrenic. So <laughs> most, most of my staff are communication and they're doing what you say. They're putting out TV programs and videos and newsletters, et cetera, et cetera, and stories. But the other side of global mission um, which we also try to tell the story of, but it's probably not as widely told that we have church planting going on. We have thousands of lay people around the world we call global mission pioneers who are starting new congregations in new areas. We have six centres that have been set up to help us better understand and better communicate with people from other world religions. So we have a centre for East Asian religions. We have a centre for South Asian religions. We have a, a centre for um, Adventist Muslim relations. We have a, Jew, a Jewish Adventist Jewish Friendship Centre. We have a centre for secular and postmodern studies, and we also have an urban centre. So these are all coming under the global mission umbrella to help us more effectively understand and communicate with people who are not traditionally, who are not, who are not in the traditional Adventist framework. They speak a different language to us. They have a different worldview. How, how do we even begin to communicate with them? And then we have a, a mission to the, to the cities where we're starting centres of influence around the world, centres of influence that are platforms for holistic ministry and urban mission. So we have a, a communication side, but we also have an action side where we are actively looking for more effective ways to start new congregations in new areas. How long how long ago was it that the 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 centers the study centers were set up? Have that has that been around for the beginning or is that something that's well it was part of the it was part of the dream when they first started planning global strategy and global mission. And so I guess one of the the first center was a center for Adventist Muslim relations and that was I believe in like nineteen ninety one. And then we've slowly been adding them. <laughs> and the last one to be added was the Centre for Urban Mission. Now, obviously, that's not a world religion, but it is an area that needs special study and understanding because urban areas, people think differently. Uh, you know, these are, these are the places where they're the centres of commerce. These are the centres of industry. These are the centres of education. These are the... These are, these are where ideas are born. These are where um, ideas trickle out to the rest of the world. And so how do we begin a ministry in urban areas where historically we as Adventists have kept our distance, where we have established 
our presence, so to speak, in rural areas. We've been nervous of the city. We've been scared of the city. Um, but now we're looking at something like 60% of the world's population very soon will be living in urban areas. So this centre is helping us focus on what does it mean to have a holistic ministry in a city. Mm-hmm. How is that? So th- that push really started um, in 2010, yeah, like with the Mission to the Cities initiative is that kind of when that really started to kick off or was it going before that and that's just when it kind of came to the forefront you know it's funny when you when you look at it you you see different waves you know there's different periods of our history where we've really talked about the need for city mission and then it's faded away and i know under the previous um general conference president dr jan paulson there was a period there there was a strong emphasis on the cities and then it's been rekindled under the leadership of Elder Ted Wilson, uh, but, you know, over a century ago, one of the co-founders of the Adventist Church, the Adventist prophet, Ellen White, was just lamenting that the church was ignoring the cities. I mean, she just, page after page, she wrote sermon after sermon, she preached that we have neglected the cities, we have to do something about it. And there was a period of time when we, when the, the, the prophet of the Adventist Church wasn't even talking to the general conference president because she didn't think he was doing enough to to be involved in city mission. So yeah, but yeah, it's true. In the last last ten years, there's been a much stronger push, and certainly from our office, we've focused more intentionally with uh, with Doug Venn, who is the director of mission to the cities for the general conference, but he's also director of our global mission urban center. And uh, we also have this very strong emphasis on centres centers of influence, and we're helping to establish centres of influence in urban areas around the world. So how is how has that work grown? Um, I know I see different things, but what's what's been the result and the response to this push into the cities and and with these centres of influences? Like, what? How many of those have popped up, and and is it is it starting to gain? significant momentum or is it still kind of like a kind of like a side thing that the church hasn't really gotten its mind around it's being talked about a lot and it's being planned a lot and it's being implemented a lot uh we have hundreds of centers of influence now and let me give you one one example i went down to south america and i discovered that there were just centers of influence everywhere springing up and we had had an advisory meeting for all our division directors who came in to learn about global mission. Uh, and there was one presentation about centers of influence and our director in South America took a copy of the PowerPoint, took it home, translated it into Spanish and into Portuguese, took it around through all his territories and they just started them. And I think it's, it's something that kind of sells itself because how do you argue against an approach that, first of all, Ellen White championed, but secondly, is based on Christ's method of ministry, where we're going to where the people are and we're providing a platform to put Christ's method of ministry into practice where we mingle with people, we show sympathy, we minister to needs, we win their confidence, and then we take the next step of inviting them to follow Jesus. So there's nothing to not like about a centre of influence. Now, of course, it's not easy. I mean, cities are expensive, 
Um, and there are some people who still prefer a more traditional approach where, well, you know, we, we just preach the message, brother, you know, just preach the message. Well, um, as as we've often talked about, we, we basically need to earn the right to share the gospel. We, people need to trust us before they're going to listen and make a life change. Yeah. I just saw, I can't remember where I saw it, <clears throat> but it was an article talking about that the the Mormons, or is it the the Christian scientists, anyway, have uh, have a center, a center of influence, uh, directly across the street in Manhattan from the Hamilton Theater, but that they bought that property from the Adventists. You might have seen that in a tweet that I sent out. Maybe that's what it was, yeah. yeah. And, yeah we, had a, we had a wonderful center there right in Times Square, uh, and... It was like an old theater and center there, but for whatever reason, some years ago it was sold, and now it's the head of Scientology in in New York City. But prime location, yeah, right a, right across from the street where the Hamilton musical has been sort of like wowing audiences for the last few years. Right. Yeah, it's a shame that that you know we've lost those those places. I think that you can kind of look at different areas and find that we've released properties, you know, as cities have grown because it made financial sense when our priority wasn't the center to release those properties that, you know, the generations before us had the foresight to purchase in the first place to position us. And, uh, and then we let them go (laughs) and and now they're gone. Um, you know, one thing that, that I look at, and I don't know if it's, it's the, the same, everywhere. But, you know, I look at um, Louisville, Kentucky. I've lived there for a few years. And, you know, I look at, at, at how that city is set up. So Louisville, is, the metro area extends into Indiana. So there's a, the, the Ohio River separates it. But if you're, if you're a Louisville native, like New Albany, Indiana, Jeffersonville, Indiana, they... Um, that's all one metropolitan area. And so with that being said, so you have this city, there's about 16 churches in the Louisville metro area, but those 16 churches are divided out across four conferences and two unions. And so what happens is you've got six different agendas pushing in, and so it, it kind of breaks apart the focus of what we're doing in that area, right? Because you've got each conference trying to do what it feels is necessary for its constituency, but here's this city that's not having a uh, integrated approach. I don't know. Is there from from a from a mission perspective? Is there any is is there any thought being given to that of how we've organized around to better you know reach the cities to kind of like you know, bring more collaboration and kind of like synthesis to the urban areas? Because I think a lot of cities are divided that way. If they, if they don't land squarely in the middle of a conference, they start to get divided. I think New York's another one. And uh, I think LA has a conference inside of another conference in that area. How do we, what's the way forward in moving that needle and moving the work in the cities to get more 
collaboration between our different pieces. Greater minds than mine have not been able to solve that one. <laughs> I, you know, it seems sounds like a cliche, but it's true that organization should be the servant of mission. And I think we just need to get down on our knees again and we need to confess that often it's got in the way. And the way that we've done things, the way that we've structured things has not always been the best way to do things. And I think that there are some areas that need to be changed. Now, it's possible. Now, uh, you know, you mentioned New York and, you know, a few years back, the conferences that are involved in that metropolitan area actually came together, planned together, prayed together and worked on a systematic approach to mission in New York City. So it can be done. But it's easy to fall back into old habits and, and care for what we're caring for. So apart from prayer and speaking up on the right committees, I, you know, it's, I don't have any overnight answer to that, but you've identified a major problem. Mm-hmm. So from, from the global perspective, uh, you know, one of the things that, that you know, I'm, I've, I've, I've kind of had some excursions over. I've spent, you know, short-term mission trips in India and, uh, I've, you know, been out of the country, you know, to, you know, close by, you know, Canada, Jamaica, Mexico. So I'm not, I'm not well-traveled around the world. But I understand that, that America has a different perspective. You know, every country has its own perspective. But especially, you know, because I'm here and I've only know here, it seems like we get very much centered into our echo chambers and um, kind of lose sight of that global perspective that I think that as I talk to people from other countries, even other Western countries, they have more of a global perspective than um, Americans do. When, when the church is trying to um, work on a global scale, um, how, what are some of the things that maybe aren't out on the surface that are, that, that you have to, um, to work through or, or push forward to, work cross-culturally to see mission go forward, um, uh, you know, transcending the cultural bounds, because, you know, I think our church definitely comes from a, uh, you know, Western American kind of background because we were started here. So what kind of intentionality do you have to put into how you go and work in Africa or, you know, Asia or the Middle East? Like, what are the considerations you have to have when you're going into those fields? Yeah, I think you have highlighted something that the church has become more and more conscious of in recent years. And I think that often some of our earlier missionaries, when they when they went out, they did wonderful work and God bless them. But at, at times it seemed that they were also importing a little bit of American culture with them when they when they went to various places. For example, you know, I can take you places in the South Pacific where I come from, you can go to some islands where you get up to preach on Sabbath morning and it'll be 150% humidity and you'll be dying of the heat. But if you're not wearing a tie and jacket, you will not get up to preach because this is seen as an integral part of Sabbath keeping, but especially for the preacher. And, of course, if you forgot your jacket and tie, no worries because I'll have a whole rack of them out the back to you. So... You know, this is it's, it's kind of like a superficial example, but 
um, the challenge that we have in mission is to make sure that when we share the, the good news that we're sharing the principles and not getting it all mixed up with cultural things. So we don't, you know, remember back in the Council of Jerusalem when they were discussing how do we deal with Gentiles who are coming into the faith, one of the, one of the strongest speeches was given by the Apostle James toward the end, and he said, Brethren, I am convinced that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. In other words, if it's not something that's a biblical principle and it's purely cultural, then let's not let it get in the way. And, and so we have a, what we call the Institute of World Mission, which is a group of missiologists who now train missionaries who go to foreign countries. It's not just Americans going to other countries, but Australians who are going or Filipinos or Africans, just to help them be more understanding of cultural issues so that when they are in their new field of ministry, that they are conscious and take into account cultural differences because it's very easy to, to overlook that and to cause a lot of problems. I remember when I first started with Global Mission, Mike Ryan and I were out in uh, Burkina Faso, West Africa, and hardly in just a handful of Adventists there. And we, there were Global Mission pioneers working, starting new congregations. We went to one uh, one group that had been established, and I had my video camera there, and so the new believers proudly s s stood in line to sing for us. So I videoed it. And they sang this Western hymn, and it was awful. It was out of tune. It was, they were just struggling. And I'll never forget that Mike went and quietly spoke to the Global Mission Pioneer. And I just saw the pioneer smile widely, and he took his small group, and they went behind their little grass um, thatch church, and they came back out, and this time they came out with their own instruments. And... They then sang for me, but it was in their own language. It was their own melody, their own song, with their own instruments. And it was beautiful. It was just harmonic. It had rhythm because they were singing the Lord's song in their own language. And this is just the crucial thing, you know, um, when the exiles were in Babylon, the exiles tried to force them to sing songs and they asked the question, how do we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? Well, the way to sing the Lord's song in a strange land is to do it in the language of that land and it's to do it according to the rhythms of that land without compromising principle but to be aware that they do things differently which may not be morally, ethically or biblically wrong. So it's a... It's, it's something where you need to sort out the two. So when we look at a world church, when we're coming from hundreds of different cultures, we have to be very careful that when we produce materials, books, lessons, whatever, that we don't think there's a one-size-fits-all. It has to be translated not only in language but in concepts, in, in, in worldview, so it'll be understood in different areas. Yeah. That was a long answer, sorry. No, it's fine. You know, one of my <clears throat> one of my favorite uh, chapters in talking about you know this urban work from my history, and it is 
in The Desire of Ages, the chapter, the least of these, I think it's chapter 71. Anyway, I don't remember the quote specifically, but she says, how surprised will the heathen be when, you know, and this is a paraphrase, but when they're called forth, you know, on that day, because having, you know, been moved by the Spirit, they, they responded and treated, you know, missionaries that came into their country with kindness. And, you know, and, and that, you know, that, that whole, that whole chapter, Matthew 25, and, and the judgment scene there is all about how we treat other people. And, and I just, you know, to me, she just does such a, a, a succinct breakdown of like, here's what really matters. How did you treat people? And, and, you know, what God is looking for is can your heart be softened to love others, to treat others with kindness and compassion the way that God has treated you and and Jesus modeled for us on this earth. And if we take, you know, I have found that if I take that approach, that it's so much easier to, to bend a little bit on my, um, and, and get a better perspective on what, what is the principle here? What is the non-negotiable about what we're talking about here? If my eye is, how am I going to love this person the way that Jesus loved them, you know, the way that God has loved me, and, you know, look critically at, at all the, the nonsense that God has to put up with from me, then right. that begins to, you know, cause me to interact with other people in the same way. And yeah. I think, you know, it seems to me that that's just, that has to be there to, to let people experience God in their own skin um, yeah. and not, not put it on our own. When and it becomes more challenging with with a with a world church of you know twenty something million people scattered in so many different cultures because I'm going to encounter people coming from different cultures who think very differently to me on some topics. How do we accommodate that? How do we deal with that um, if it's if there's no clear thus saith the Lord? You know, an issue issue comes up of say should we ordain women for the ministry and. Um, a majority of people perhaps in Western countries will vote a certain way and then they'll find that the larger block of people coming from some of the more developing parts of the world will have a different approach. Am I going to still love my brother and sister who I, I totally disagree with on this? And so as a, world church, as a world church grows with different cultures, we have to be even more accepting and loving despite the differences. Yeah. I, I preached one time and I made the comment, and this was in the context of God's love for the sinner, and that you know I, I was talking to people about that that God is is more interested in the salvation of another per any person than you ever will be. No matter how how concerned you think you are, God is more concerned and He is more interested in seeing them receive salvation and come to a relationship with Him than you will ever be. And the reality is, is if our eschatology is true, um, Jesus isn't coming tomorrow. And so we have to work in such a way that we don't become a barrier to the work that God is doing. Yes. Well, I had um, someone in that church get very upset that I said that Jesus isn't coming tomorrow. <laughs> and, oh. and they lit me up. Um, we were having a meeting at the church that night, and for like 45 minutes, they just laid into me. And, and I took it. I just let them, let them go. And, you know, that individual is probably, I have one of the deepest relationships with that person now that of anyone who's not a family member, I I have a deep love for them and their whole family um, that I don't have for anyone who's not a family member, actually. 
but but that happened you know that came out of you know that my my understanding that that they're entitled to their opinion but i still have to love them if i'm going to you know i still have to love them i still have to respect them and because i did that i mean we don't we disagree you know we are on different ends of the spectrum theologically you know and uh but we still love each other you know, and I know that they love me as well. Like, we, but we built that because we came to the place where we were willing to let us be who we are in our relationship with Jesus and love each other anyway. And I and I feel like that's lost. I feel like that's that's lost a lot when we are trying to do things because we think <clears throat> we think that we have figured out a system of how to do that. And uh, I don't know if it's the same way around the world. Do you run into challenges? Um, you know here it's very hard to get past this idea that if we send out handbills and we preach for 20 nights that we'll baptize people when you when you're trying to work with other fields around the world what are do you have challenges in trying to uh translate or or get people to um maybe uh go with what you're trying to especially when we talk about we'll put it in the context of the cities like when you're trying to talk to them about centers of influence do you have people that are pushing back from a cultural perspective going, no, we shouldn't be doing that? And how do you deal with that when you come to an impasse from, you know, one culture to another on how you're going to approach mission in that field? Yeah, sure. Uh, I, I think that what happens is that people look at what we've been doing in the past and it's very easy to just say, well, our default method is that, well, we're going to distribute literature, we're going to hold a public evangelism meetings and then we're going to leave the city and then we'll come back in six months and do another event or something like that. I think that's become a pattern in many parts of the world. I think there's a growing realisation that our mission needs to be holistic, that, yes, of course there's a place for public meetings and, of course, we need literature literature, but an effective urban mission has to be a long-term on-the-ground mission. It can't be short-term. Uh, urban dwellers, I mean, you're not even accepted as part of the neighbourhood until you've been there for 10 years. You know, you're, you're a foreigner, whatever, but unless you're there rubbing shoulders with people, shopping with them in the grocery store, um, bumping into them as you go for a walk in the evening, then you're not going to be able to connect with them in a way that is going to be long-term for the kingdom. Uh, we mentioned before that we need to earn the right to share share what we believe with people, and they're not, they're not going to even be open to us until we've earned their friendship and their trust. So we see many parts of the world today that realise the need for this. But, of course, there's, you know, there's some parts of the world, honestly, you can get up and, you know, you can preach from the yellow pages of the phone book and you're going to baptise someone. I mean, I, you know, I'm exaggerating, but you get a very good response to certain methods. That's going to change. I mean, as as people become more urban, as areas become more urbanised, people get busier, they have many different options. They're not necessarily going to come out for a 10 nights of public meetings. And so we need to find other approaches as well that are going to touch the lives of people in the city. What's when you look at, at all the challenges that that you're having to wrestle with in in your role as the director of Adventist Mission, 
what's what's the biggest cross-cultural challenge that that we have to deal with as a church trying to fulfill our mission i think we we all tend to be captives of our own culture and it's very very hard for us to move outside of that even if we're we're aware of it uh, you know the old saying of birds of a feather flock together we love to be near people who are like us. We speak the same language. We laugh at the same jokes. We have a certain understanding. It's just much more comfortable. And for us to actually go outside of our comfort level to make friendships with somebody totally different to us is really hard, and we don't do it well. Uh, you know, I say I have a Hindu neighbour. Um, how am I going to build bridges with that person? And am I even going to make the effort? And most of us don't. So cross-culturally, I think, first of all, the biggest challenge we face is actually getting people who are prepared to say, Lord, use me to go cross-culturally. I am prepared to move out of my comfort zone to connect with someone who is totally different to me in the name of Jesus. So I think that's, that's the biggest challenge. And I'm so thankful that many people are taking the, the call to do this. I mean, we've got an army of young people around the world who are raring to go who say, you know, please send me. I mean, we have from South America, we have young people lining up to go to the Middle East. They're going there to to do various things. Some are going as what we call Waldensian students where they will go and they will enlist, become a student in a university in the Middle East not because they necessarily want to get the degree, but because they that gives them an excuse to be there and to then be an influence in the class community. So we have Waldensian students. We have other people who are tent makers who are prepared to go and find a job cross-culturally in a challenging area, not necessarily just so that they can earn an income, but because they have a wider purpose, and that is they want to be an influence for Jesus in that area. So I think the church is now starting to break down some of those barriers. And and there's a growing consciousness here in America, here in Australia, that the Adventist church is not American. It's not Australian. It's not African. It has to be something that is for all people from all cultures. And Ellen White was the one who spoke strongest about that. You know, she said, Jesus had no caste or country. There should be nothing of caste or country in our religion. And so... Part of our task is to make sure that we, we're we conscious of this. I mean, just yesterday, a group of us were looking at the church manual. You go through the church manual, and boy, is it American. I mean, just, but this is used, translated, and used all over the world. And so one of the things we noticed was that constantly came up that, you know, we need to be conscious of time limits when we're holding a, a service. You know, this must be brief, and then this, this must be timely. It's a... Some cultures, they don't care about time. Who cares if we finish at 12 noon? No, we're here to let the spirit move. We're here to celebrate. If we go to 2 o'clock in the afternoon, who cares? We don't need some American coming to us and telling us, make it brief, you know. So we we just need to be conscious that we need to find every way possible to break down those barriers. Yeah. So I want to... I want to chase the thought that that you just kind of touched on with these Waldensian students. So 
when you look at going into like frontline missions, when you're going into say a Muslim country where you can't just go in and be like, you know, hello, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. Can I share the Bible with you? Like you have to take a more um, cautious and conscientious approach to entering that area. But then yet when we, when we talk about working in, you know, Western society and in postmodern society, our, our main approach is still to just go out, you know, and put billboards up and send flyers in the mail. Is there anything, is there any, any stories from those, those, you know, the, the Waldensian students or, or those people who are working in those countries where they have to go in and, and be cautious lest they die that can highlight the, the, the impact that it can have to just be mindful in how you approach people and not necessarily come out guns blazing, but still see a result from your effort. Any story that you can, can share? Well, one, of the, well, one of the beautiful things about working in those environments is that it forces us back to the basics to do what Christ's method was, which was to mingle, show sympathy, minister to needs, win confidence. So yeah, Waldensian students, put Christ's method into practice. They go to class. Uh, they will sometimes come to moments, where, for example, where there's a, say, there's an exam on Sabbath and they are then a witness to their class because they're not prepared to do that. And then that opens up opportunities for talking and um, often they are admired because, you know, they are so faithful and... Um, story after story where these students make friends with their classmates and then quietly in their homes they ask questions and they learn more and they learn from the Bible and they start to learn about Jesus. And I mean we have a lot of shared um, interests with our with our Muslim friends. I mean they are very anxious about Jesus coming again soon, for example, and we have the opportunity to, to talk about that and talk about our difference in understandings, et cetera, et cetera. So we have many uh, linkage points, connection points that we have. So, so yeah, I mean, so when we're not talking about mass baptisms of thousands of people that we're hearing from some parts of the world, but we are witnessing slowly, softly, quietly, faithful Adventists putting Christ's method into practice and God's blessing that. How does the church handle this? Is this is a little off topic, and then <clears throat> I've got one more question, and we'll wrap it up. But you know, when we talk about this idea of being, you know, culturally sensitive from from a from an American perspective right now, and and the um kind of the the optics on Islam and Muslims, I could see there being a group of the population that that sees like the hijab and and the and the burqa as being, you know, something that should be cast off if they're going to come out of, uh, you know, the Muslim faith. How do we approach that as a church? Like, how, how do we, you know, how do we deal with that? And really, I, I mean, I think I probably know the answer to that. But then is, you know, how do we distinguish those things when we're working with a faith that's distinctly different from uh, our own Christian faith in, you know, in the foreign fields? How do we determine what is what's most important when we're talking about seeing someone's life being transformed by the gospel 
how do we prioritize what we're going to um, make an issue out of in the in the in the field? Yeah, it's a it's a it's one of the missiological challenges to unpack what is cultural and what is a biblical imperative, and so that's something that has to be worked through in the situation, in the context, prayerfully working with the local people as the new believers come in. But, for example, if a Muslim believer chooses to accept the Adventist faith, why should they have to come into a church where they keep their shoes on and sit in a pew when culturally that is just anathema to them from where they're coming on? Why can't we have a worship service for them where they leave their shoes outside and come in and sit on the floor? Um, where wearing your shoes inside is seen as as um, something that is a very unholy thing to do. So we we need to be very careful that we aren't asking too much of, of cultures. That you know, you know, I I have Jewish Adventist friends who are very proud that they are Jews. You know, they haven't they, they haven't stopped being a Jew just because they've become an Adventist. And so someone coming from a Muslim culture that that Islamic culture that they come from, they don't have to say goodbye to all of that. They they are accepting Jesus as their saviour, they're accepting new understandings, etc., etc., but they don't have to get rid of things that are not biblically wrong. And it's that serious, that, that process of unpacking, of, of distinguishing the two that is a very important missiological task. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I... It's interesting because just thinking back on my own experience, when I, um, you know, I was raised in the church but left for a while. When I was coming back, uh, when I had my conversion experience, like it was, I wouldn't say that anyone told me, but it was just kind of understood that I had to walk away from the from everything that I knew. Like I was, it was very clear to me that I needed to make this distinction between the old life and the new life. And you know, many years later you know, trying to, you know, I tried to maintain those relationships. And many years later, I, you know, I realized that through some conversations, like I had hurt people really deeply. So like their experience with Christianity, some of them, their only experience, um, meaningful experience with someone who they loved and trusted, um, who became a Christian and showed them what Christianity was, was, you know, leaving them abruptly and severing the relationship and so then, you know, Christianity was, you know, there's nothing good in that. If I become a Christian, I have to leave everything I know, everyone I know, every, you know, and, and there are times, obviously, when God is going to call someone to do that, but God doesn't call everyone to do that, you know, and, and God's call should be God's call. Yeah, so exactly. last thing, wrapping up, I know that that um, we've already gone over our time, but I really appreciate it. There's... There's a lot of optics right now on on the places where we're disagreeing in the church at the high levels, and you have the privilege of being in 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 the meetings that other people don't get to be in, and being on the front row for these challenges that we're facing. I'm glad you used the word privilege. I never looked at it that way. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I try to put the best spin on it possible. Um, I know that that's a heavy burden to bear. I, I know that it's got to be a heavy burden for all of you in you know the leadership at the general conference level, um, trying to navigate this. 
what what do you see in the committees that you're on and the meetings that you're in, um, you know, maybe outside of annual council or maybe even at annual council? What do you see that's giving you hope and and comfort that that we'll get past this and it's like showing you that there there's light at the end of the tunnel that that you know we're still together and we're going to make it through this. Yeah, we just had a week of prayer here at the GC, which finished today, and the speaker was Sheree Peoples. And this morning, I can't remember the exact way she phrased it, but it was kind of, you know, we can argue about some point and end up being right, but we've lost the lost. You know, we've, we've been so internally focused on our own issues that we have lost the bigger picture. And I think there's a... There's a sense, maybe a growing sense, that we need to move on to to make the camels the camels and keep the gnats the gnats. And I think there's a, a growing awareness that we need to refocus on mission, on the big picture of mission, and maybe some of these internal disputations over different things will fade into being less important when we put it in that larger light. So I see some optimism in, in that area, and I think there's a growing a growing respect and understanding from people who come from different points of view. So I'm also optimistic that God will sort everything out in good time. Mm-hmm. Well, despite good. us. Yeah, <laughs> always despite us. Well... Thanks for sticking with me. It took us a long time to get this together, but I appreciate your willingness to uh, stay the course until we could find time uh, in your schedule to have this conversation. Uh, I appreciate it a lot, Gary. No, thanks for your patience. I appreciate it, my friend. All right. Well, that's it for today. Gary, thank you so much. It it really did, as we mentioned there at the end, uh, it took us months to find time in Gary's schedule, but... Uh, he, he stayed with me. He checked in with me and, and kept the communication going, and that, that meant a lot. So thank you very much for that, um, for finding the time. And, uh, and we did run over from what uh, he scheduled for me, but uh, he would graciously stuck it out. So thank you so much, Gary, for your time. Just a reminder, last time, now is the time to act. If you have been listening for the last month and hearing me talk about the Masters of Cinema, Religion, and Worldview at Walla Walla University, the promotion code will be ending here at the end of May. And so if you're thinking that you want to get in on this amazing program, uh, you want to go over to the website, you want to go to filmforhim.com slash org. That's film number four him.org slash called and register for the program. When you register, if you enter the promo code Westvi, then you're going to save the $50 application fee. So get over there, put in your application even if uh, you're not 100%, but you're leaning that way, go ahead and do it. Save that 50 bucks and get your spot held uh, to jump in that cohort. Classes begin in the middle of June. As always, don't forget Andrew over at 42design.co. If you have any graphic design needs that you need filled right now, Andrew's your guy. I'm just so excited to see all the opportunities that he's getting, all the projects he's working on. He does great work, guys. And uh, you want to have him do great work for you also. With that, we're going to tie it up. Thanks so much. Don't forget, you can get the West Vibe podcast uh, pretty much anywhere that you download your podcast, including now 
Stitcher. So I'm putting the podcast on Stitcher, and I think that pretty much concludes all the major podcatching apps that it needs to be on. If I miss something, feel free to uh, come on over to social media, West Vi Podcast at Facebook or West underscore Vi at Instagram, and let me know that I have not hit your favorite podcatching app yet, and I will work on that. But otherwise, reviews or ratings, really appreciate feedback, guys. Um, You can find me on LinkedIn also. I'm starting to get more active on LinkedIn, having some great conversations there. And uh, so if you're on LinkedIn, search me out, Wes Vi on LinkedIn. With that, we're done. Thanks so much for listening to the Wes Vi Podcast. See you next week. Thank you.